0: Hey, my guest on this episode of Unbeatable is Colby Smith. Imagine that you just accepted a position to a very exclusive school. And when you've already said yes, you get a phone call saying that your dream job has just become available. What do you do? Well, that's exactly where Colby found himself when he got recruited to play baseball at West Point in the United States, but his entire childhood, he just wanted to play professional baseball. And right after saying yes to West Point, he gets a phone call from the New York Yankees saying we're interested. You're gonna find out what Colby does next in this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. Colby, thank you so much for joining me today, man. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, it's an honor. Yeah. Well, you and I have a mutual friend. We've never really met in person, but a big shout out to Sam for connecting us online and making this interview possible.
1: Yeah, shout out to Sam. Yeah. Yeah, Sam was the the chaplain uh, in my last unit in the military, and we got to be good buddies. And yeah, he had just so much Amazing things to say about you, Jeff, and and uh, he's made me into a, a, a fan, one of your many fans. So. Well,
0: he that's funny because he said the same thing about you, and he was like, Jeff, you really got to talk to this guy. And he and yeah. I connected a bunch of times together in your previous unit, but I guess you and I just never had a chance to meet each other face to face, right?
1: I don't think so. Yeah, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So um, we're going to talk about what you're doing now in just a moment, but uh, I want to go back and do some backstory. For those of you who are listening and you don't recognize the name Colby Smith, he spent some time in the U S army before leaving, um, going to business school and helping to start a business. And Colby, I just want to ask like, why, what, what prompted you to join the army? What was the motivation there?
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. You know, there's so many unique stories about how people enter into the service. Mm -hmm. Actually listen to part of your, your Liberty convocation and, uh, you know, my story is way, way less deliberate than than your decision to to join the military. Um, I kind of stumbled into it, to be honest. Um, so growing up, uh, my dad was a baseball scout. Uh-huh. My mom was a school teacher. So sports and academics were super, super important to us. Uh, the third, I guess, like pillar, if you want to call them those, when I was growing up in our family was faith. I was, you know, fortunate enough to to grow up in a family that. They took us to church, and you know they didn't like ram it down our throats. But uh, as I got older, uh, you know, became a Christian, and, and that made a huge difference in my life as well. Uh, so that continued uh, up through high school. I made the decision I wanted to play Division One baseball at the best academic school that I could get into, and uh, that recruiting process uh, as a high school athlete who wants to play you know D one sports is kind of yeah. weird. Yeah, you don't have a whole lot of like control over the process. It's very like, like luck and like timing dependent. You have to like play at the right showcase Uh in front of the right schools. And the the stars have to align type of thing. And, uh, just so happened that the two like good academic schools that recruited me the most were the U S air force Academy in West Point. And, you know, that was like totally, totally weird for me because I had zero connection to the military at that point, zero family. I didn't know anyone who had served. So I was like, you know, like, God, what is this about? You know, like, there's like a clear message here that you're, you're, you know, drawing me towards service. uh, Even though that that wasn't something that I had in my plans, you know, I planned on trying to play pro baseball. That was, that was my goal. Yeah. So, um, you ended up talking to a bunch of people, uh, who gave me good advice and they're like, Hey, if you get into one of those schools, like you gotta, you gotta do it. Yeah. You gotta Uh, jump on
0: those opportunities, man. Right. So, uh,
1: uh, ended up deciding to go the West point route. Honestly, like, I'm still not sure why. Uh, I think it was just based on what I'd seen in, in movies and stuff. I thought the Army jobs looked like more fun uh, than being a pilot for whatever reason. <laughs> so, so committed to doing that. And, um, you know, that decision got more difficult, actually, after I graduated from high school, right before I reported to West Point, because I got drafted by the New York Yankees. So,
0: at well, that hold point, Hold on, I had you, uh, w- had you already committed to West Point before you got drafted by the Yankees?
1: Right, right. So wow, I just a few- man,
0: one of the most storied and well respected baseball programs in history says we want you, but you've already said yes to the United States Military Academy in West Point. Man, that that must have been a rough decision for you.
1: <laughs> it was. It was, you know, especially given that, like I said, I had I had no aspirations to serve in the military, but had like huge aspirations to play pro baseball. And here I get like given the chance to get paid to play the game. I love. Um, but ultimately ended up deciding to to go the West point route instead of going to play pro baseball out of high school. Um, just felt like I'd made a commitment and I mentally had to overcome so much to be like, okay, I'm ready to give my all to this West point thing. It was just too late for me to pivot. So at the time too, though, it was sort of like a a half commitment because at the time you could go to West point play four years of division one baseball get drafted again out of the academy and go play right away instead of serving in the army. So I was like, yeah, that sounds like the perfect scenario. Like I'll go get a great West Point degree and then go play pro baseball like I've always dreamed of and forget about this army stuff. So that's sort of like was the plan when I went to West Point. Yeah, it's
0: the best of both worlds right there, right? Right, right. How much did your mom and dad influence that decision? Because I can only imagine being tugged in the – Get a chance to play ball for the Yankees, at least make your way through the Yankees uh, program or go to West Point, become a military officer and maybe never play pro baseball at all. That's a rough decision to have to make right there, man, especially when you've already given your word. Right
1: No. I mean, my parents were huge in that, uh, especially my dad. Again, he was a baseball scout, you know, for you know my whole childhood uh, with different teams, primarily the Dodgers. But. You know, we spent our summers following him around to minor league baseball stadiums uh-huh. and, and seeing what that pro ball life is like. Uh, so, you know, when I was like, hey, dad, what do you think I do here? He was like, look, like, you know, that minor league baseball is not the glamorous life yeah. people. You know what lead. it looks like. Right. Right. And the chances of making it to the big leagues are, are so slim. He was like, go get a good education. And then, you know, if if the door is open still for pro ball down the line, take it. Um, so, Yeah. Very well, thankful now that, that he gave me that advice.
0: I was just thinking, you did get the whole package when you were growing up though. If you had a mom who was an educator, a dad who was a, you know, into sports, a dad who had a career in sports, and they both gave you the foundation of faith. Man, that's the whole package right there. No wonder yeah. why you had some, you know, opportunities in front of you. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean incredibly blessed, right? Like uh, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways I did start on third base, you know. Um So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been critical and and I'm so thankful for it.
0: So for people that don't understand the opportunity to get into one of those service academies, the air force academy, the naval academy, which were the Marines, uh, come out of, or the U S military academy for the army, those percentages are extremely low. So when you got a chance to go to school in one of those two, it is a once in a, a lifetime opportunity. You know that, I know that, I just wanted to make sure the listeners know that. And you went to West Point to play baseball, right?
1: Right, exactly.
0: And then, I know, uh, we just talked about this a few moments ago, what happens to you while you're at West Point to play baseball and eventually hoping to get into the big leagues?
1: Right, so yeah, I mean, I had this great plan when I entered West Point, and uh, that fell apart almost immediately.
0: Um, so plans my first normally semester- do. I'm sorry. I said like plans normally do. Yep. Exactly. Don't don't survive first contact. Right. right? Uh, Mine
1: did not. Mine crumbled right away. Um, So my my first semester at school, uh, my freshman year, plebe year, I'm in boxing class, and what's point to make you take boxing? And uh, you know, I I throw a a right hook at some point and dislocate my shoulder, my throwing arm. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it hurts like heck, but you know, I I you know keep trying to like my teeth and make my way through it but every every day in boxing class my shoulders popping out popping out i'm just in so much pain i can't throw at all so i missed my whole freshman baseball season and ultimately you know go get an mri and find that i I tore my labrum and i needed season-ending surgery on my throwing arm. oh
0: dude
1: um i still was optimistic i felt like you know this season's going down the tubes but i'm just a freshman Uh, I'll bounce back. I'll rehab. I'll I'll get back to hundred percent. I'll be a starter. I'll go play pro baseball. like, it's all going to happen. And that, that wasn't in the cards. Like that wasn't God's plan. Uh, My shoulder came back to about 60 or 70% strength. So it was like good enough to stay on the team if I, if I wanted to, but, but not good enough to start. So, um, and I was a catcher and as a, as a catcher, it's just, it's even more. Oh yeah taxing than any other position because when the pitchers get their work in, the catchers are there catching the bullpens, which just, you know, beats the heck out of your body. Uh And then when they're done, then you start your real practice with the rest of the position players. So it's this massive time commitment and just so physically taxing. And you do that to get on the field and play and compete at the sport you love. And I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I'm I'm asking myself, like, is, you know, first of all, do I want to stay at West point because pro balls out the window, So if I stay at West Point, I'm going into the service very much in a time of war. Like, is that what I really want? And then secondly, if I stay, do I want to stay on the baseball team and commit all this time and effort to something where I know I'm not going to play? So that was really, really tough. And
0: what did, what helped make that decision for you? First about the baseball team. Secondly, about uh, just sticking around West Point and joining the army at a time where you virtually know you're going to go to war.
1: Yeah. For me, at least, you know, for the Army thing, I, I I, could not have been, again, more ignorant about the Army when I showed up at West Point. I didn't know the difference between officers and enlisted personnel. And that's like a little, little bit of a difference there. there
0: yeah, Academy. there's a little bit of a difference there.
1: <laughs> like, I didn't know, like, that. that's why I was going to academies to be an officer. You know, like, I didn't know the ranks, but I didn't know the difference between a sergeant and a colonel. Like, literally, I could not have been more ignorant. But over my first couple of years at West Point, I, I started to see, you know, a little bit about what the army was about. And I, I liked it. You know, I was like, this I think could be a good fit. So uh, I'm going to stick it out here at the Academy. And, and I loved my teammates and I loved, you know, the team. I really cared about them. Uh, so I just, you know, I prayed about it a lot and, you know, it wasn't like a conscious well thought out decision on my part to, to stay on the baseball team. I just felt like the Lord was, was gonna, you know, he was calling me to lead in different ways than I'd led before on the team, and I, I, I had unfinished business there, yeah. so.
0: Well, you already got accepted into one of the most difficult schools in, on the planet, literally, if you look at the um, rate of acceptance versus applications, just to get into West Point, and you got accepted to play ball, so why did you decide to stick around and play baseball after you had this season-ending and probably career-ending injury right out of the gate first year in school?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I don't know. It was like a, it was a God thing. Like the, the, the logical decision would be to stop wasting my time in baseball.
0: Right. That's what I'm saying. Like why'd you keep hanging around the baseball team when you knew that my shoulder blown? No, it was, it was like, it was a passion
1: thing. I was passionate about my teammates. You know, I love those guys. And like the thought of, of not being able to help them be successful on the field was just like, was too hard for me. Like I wanted to help them. I didn't know how I was going to help them, but I felt like God was saying, dude, I have, I have plans for you. (laughs) You You're going to, you're going to find ways to, to contribute, even if it's not on the field. And that, that ended up being really true.
0: How did you end up contributing?
1: I mean, I was, I was just committed to like, when I show up every day, I'm going to have the best attitude I possibly can. I'm going to have the best work ethic Uh I possibly can. I can't contribute on the field, you know, by, you know, through batting or throwing out base runners anymore, but I can contribute by catching bullpens really well. You know, mentoring the younger yeah. catchers, uh, you know, advising the the young pitchers, you know, on what they're doing, and uh, and just being like the best teammate I possibly could be. So I um, hope
0: somebody who's listening to you right now is hearing, okay, life just threw you a hard punch. I'm using your um, boxing class uh, analogy, and things didn't go the way that you wanted them to go, and you can't control your circumstances. I hope they're hearing this right now, and you're talking about right where they're at. But I also hear them, I hope they hear you saying, you can't control the circumstances, but you can't control your reaction and your attitude towards them. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so, so you stick around the Army. Um, you obviously become an Army officer, and you end up going and serving where?
1: Sure. Just just to, to wrap that story up. So uh, my teammates, I think, ultimately, just to, to put a bow uh, you know, uh, on it, yeah. Oh, on it. Um, my teammates, I think saw how committed I was to them and that I was, I really cared about the team uh, and they ended up electing me to be, uh, their team captain my senior year, uh, despite not wow. playing you know, on the field. So that was, that for me was the validation that I'd done yeah. about it the way, uh, was that, you know, at least in my, in my teammates eyes, they saw me as someone they wanted to to represent the team. Yeah. So. That's,
0: uh, that's incredible. The fact that you're not playing, but they're they they recognize this is the heartbeat of the team right there.
1: Totally. So, so anyways, yeah. So after that uh, entered the army, so I, I branched infantry, um, you know, made a pit stop down at uh, Fort Benning for uh-huh. about a year, did infantry officer basic course, uh, ranger school and airborne school. Um, and then shipped out to Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, married my wife, my high school sweetheart, Sarah, was just incredible. And um, deployed almost right away. So, you know, I'm still 22 years old and uh, found myself in Afghanistan leading troops in combat as a, an infantry platoon leader, which is something that I you know, I really wanted to do. Yeah,
0: so. not only in Afghanistan, but this is the heart, uh, this is right in the middle of the big war um, that's been going on there for a few years. And you're located on the border where a lot of action is at a US um, fire base. Um, so talk about what happens when you're leading a platoon of infantry, US Army infantry, in jalalabad in april of of 2012
1: yep that's right yeah so get there early 2012 um you know take a couple months for uh you know getting our feet under us you know going out on patrols uh the platoon is is performing well we're getting to know each other better uh getting more cohesive and uh you know meeting our our Afghan military and police counterparts Uh and getting to know the locals and and helping them any way we can. And, you know, it's going great, but it's just super, super quiet. It's like eerily quiet. We're not seeing any Taliban activity, no firefights. It's all concentrated kind of in the mountains to the North and South of us. So we're like, man, this is like, this is like too easy right now. And, uh, and that changed, in a hurry
0: <laughs> and i just want to pause for a second by the way anybody who's listening and you're hearing this guy's at war and it's really really quiet well it's one of those eerie quiets right like it's quiet it's too quiet does that mean something bad's about to happen um if in case you just are wondering why is that a big deal go for it man
1: yeah i mean because the reporting saying that there's all kinds of taliban presence uh you know they're setting up attacks they're you know, building up weapons caches and we're like, God, this sounds awful, but we're yeah. not seeing anything. Well, we, we ended up finding out, uh, on April 15th of 2012, what they were up to. And, uh, you know, at the time I was, I was, I was on the base. It was in the morning. Uh, I was having kind of a normal kind of slow day. Uh, we'd been out on patrol, I think the day before. So my, my platoon was on the base, uh, fall family shields. It was just, like just south of uh-huh. field for people who had been there. Um, and I'm, you know, by myself in like this little wood, uh, building little bee hut, uh, and I'm typing up a, a plan for a patrol that we're going to do the, the following week. And, uh, right about, you know, as I'm like in the middle of that, all of a sudden I hear just this huge explosion, massive explosion, loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I feel like the, the building I'm in is about to come down around me.
0: So Um, literally because it's just two by fours and plywood, I know what you're talking (laughs) about, but for people who don't, you're just talking about two by fours and plywood hastily nailed together.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe some sandbags if you're lucky. Right. Um, But so I'm wondering myself, you know, I'm like, I've never heard anything like this. What the heck was that? You know, like, was that a mortar? You know, but it's like way too loud for a mortar. It must've like hit my, my building or something, you know? Um, and right about then is when I hear the small arms fire go off, right? People are shooting rifles uh-huh. all around me and I'm like, Oh man, this is going down. Like we're, we're getting attacked <laughs> right now. So, um, you know, I rush out of the, the, the little building I was in, run to our company command post, you know, find my first sergeant. I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And he goes, I don't know. But you know, the big explosion happened over there where you see that smoke, that's where most of the gunfire is going on and your platoon is the only combat arm splatoon on the base today. So you guys got to go figure so it right? out.
0: Go fix it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is, again, I haven't been there very long. This is my first firefight. Like I have not <laughs> done this before. Uh-huh. And so I run, you know, get my, my NCOs and say, Hey, look, like it's up to us, we gotta go figure this out. So the guys kit up, uh, you know, get their, get their rifles ready and uh, come up with a hasty plan, And we just kind of take off charging towards the sound of the gunfire over there, and uh, it's over in in like a corner of the base, you know, a few hundred meters from where we were. And as we get closer, you know, we're heading towards the sound of the gunfire, but coming away from the blast site are wounded Americans, right? So the the units and the 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 people who were over in the the area where the attack was initiated, like they just got torn up, and they're getting pulled away, you know, dragging wounded, screaming people yeah. past us towards the aid station. And we're like, wide-eyed, like, whoa, what the heck are yeah, we doing? Like, this is
0: real, and it does not look good.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, heart is just pounding. And, uh, you know, we get, we get over there a little bit closer. And, you know, now I realize that explosion was uh, was a, a vehicle-borne IED. So, so, the Taliban packed, like, three or 400 pounds of homemade explosives in the back of a, a vehicle and a suicide bomber, drove it up to the perimeter, of our base's security fence, and detonated himself. So, uh, so a huge explosion blows down the the security fence, like the the wall that, uh-huh. that is keeping good guys in, bad guys out. And on the outside of the base, pre-staged in that area, is a group of Taliban fighters who have concealed themselves using burkas so um, um, for
0: people a, who don't know what a burqa is they're dressed as women in this long long robe that flows from head to toe and they're hiding underneath that uh women in that women's clothing go ahead exactly and uh so so uh vehicle born ied you know bomb
1: goes off blows open a, a big hole in our fence those fighters rip off their burkas and you can see their arm to the teeth yeah and come charging in the base and just start raising hell so i mean they are you know, they're kicking in doors, throwing in hand grenades. They're, you know, shooting these wood buildings with RPGs and setting them on fire. Uh, you know, shooting people with their AK-47 assault rifles, just, just going going nuts, right? Um, and by the time we get over there, there's, you know, a bunch of people wounded, but we set up a, a hasty little perimeter uh, around where the, the Taliban fighters uh-huh. are in the base and kind of get them cornered, you know, uh, over kind of near the, the blast site where they entered the base.
0: So hey uh, I want to pause for just a second and point something out. The listeners just heard and I always try to tell people this Colby when I'm doing an interview man um, warriors are my heroes because of something you just said. And what I try to tell people every time I interview a warrior is just thank you man. thank you for being willing to serve your country um, fight for our way of life but I want to I want to make sure that people didn't miss what you said when you hear the explosion and you start to make your way as a leader you're running towards the sound of the guns which itself is contrary to human nature and as you're on the way to the sound of the guns where the big fight is you see Americans coming back from the guns who are already won- wounded so in your mind you have to know uh-oh this could get bad for me right
1: right right yeah now yeah, we were totally freaked out but yeah. uh like we knew there was no real alternative, right? It was like, you just, it had to be done. So yeah.
0: I just want to point this out to listeners, like the, the kind of men and women that serve their country. And I'm talking about wherever you're listening, anywhere around the world, the guys and the gals that serve your country, they deserve a handshake because they are the kind of people that will run to the guns when everybody else is running away. Sorry to interrupt you, man. So tell us what happens when you guys get the Taliban kind of corralled together and you start to, to make a fight against them.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and thank you for your service too, Jeff. I feel kind of silly <laughs> telling my war stories to you, uh, given, you know, you're, you're just amazing. No, man, we're
0: here to hear your story, not mine. So go for it, man. What happens next? Right, so, so we've set up this little perimeter and like,
1: you know, we, we, we know where the, the Taliban fighters are in the base now, but it's, you know, it's like the last step. Somebody's got to clear through and, and eliminate those threats and and secure the base. So, uh, come up with a, another hasty plan. You know, I send, my platoon sergeant with the squad to the, you know, to the right, one of my squad leaders up the middle and me to the left with another squad. And we just kind of are pushing up online through this, just this mess of little wood buildings. And, uh, it's just like incredibly like close quarters combat, you know, like this is nasty stuff. We're like, you know, you're just like swinging your rifle around corners, not knowing what you're going to see, if it's going to be, you know, your buddy who's, who's clearing too, or if it's Uh going to be a Taliban fighter with his gun up, you know? And, just super, super intense. And finally, you know, that's, that's progressing well though, and then we get close to the breach point, you know, which is our end goal, you know, that hole in our, our perimeter. And one of the Taliban fighters climbs up into the, the elevated cement guard post uh-huh. right near, near the blast site. Uh, he kills the Afghan security guard and takes his uh, 240 machine gun yeah. and turns it around on us inside the base. Wow. So, so he's in this, this elevated, reinforced fighting position, uh, shooting down on us from about 30 meters away. Uh-huh. He's like right on top of us. So this is like as bad as it gets. And uh, me and you know, the, the group I'm with, we go diving out of the way. Thankfully, nobody gets hit in the first couple you know strings of, of gunfire. Um, so we're returning fire trying to, you know, trying to get this guy, you know, but he's in this cement bunker and, and we can't get him. And right about then, You know, this is going on for like a couple of minutes and we're just like, man, what do we do? We're like stuck here. This guy's like ripping on us with a machine gun.
0: This is not good.
1: uh, (laughs) Yeah. My, uh, my boss, eventually my company commander, captain Batty comes running up and throws me this giant bazooka looking thing. (laughs) I've never seen it before. I go, what the heck is this? And he goes, I have no idea, but like it might help,
0: but it looks cool. So try it out.
1: Yeah. I go, Oh my gosh. Like, again, I'm a 22 year old Lieutenant. I'm the last person on earth who's going to know what to do with this thing. So I, I like do it any good Lieutenant does. And I find one of my NCOs, of course. I like, hey, man,
0: smart do man,
1: what, <laughs> do you know what this thing is? And he goes, I have no idea, but I think I can figure it out. You know, uh, Sergeant Cleveland, one of my team leaders and he, you know, tinkers with it for a couple of seconds. He goes, I think I'm ready to let this thing rip. And I go send it. So he leans out into this alleyway and you know, exposes himself to that machine gun fire and shoots this what, what i ended up finding out was a light anti-tink weapon a law i looked similar to an mp yeah. 4 but a yeah. yeah. little different so he leans out and boom lets it rip and right at that exact moment all of us get blown up
0: <laughs> really and you were yeah. thinking that thing just went off it just went off in our face <laughs> i'm so all,
1: i kind of come to and i'm like super confused you know like ears are ringing uh-huh. and, and uh you know, I can't hear anything and there's dust everywhere, people yelling I'm like wondering myself, what the hell was that? Uh, and I think, oh my God, he didn't actually know how to shoot this thing. Did this idiot shoot it backwards into the ground behind him? Blow us up, right. I am like, you gotta be kidding me, I'm gonna kill this kid. But uh, that wasn't what happened. He, uh, he, it was a perfect shot. He nailed the guy, uh, nailed that guard post and, and took, took out that guy with the machine gun, thank God. So that really
0: quieted things down. Wow. One shot, never having fired the light on the weapon before. And he hits it with one shot. Impressive. It was beautiful. But you guys are all blown up. And and what happened to you?
1: Well, it, it turns out that you know there were there were fighters inside the base. There were Taliban fighters also outside the base uh-huh. uh, who were shooting in. And one of those guys outside the base, I think, probably heard me yelling orders to to the guys around me and uh was like, you know, had a, had a hand grenade. So he pulls the pin, he, you know, does a, you know, Dr. J hook shot and, uh, and lands it right in between all of us. So the timing just happened to be when he, you know, when Sergeant Cleveland was shooting that, that, that rocket that, uh, the grenade went off. So, um, and yeah, so, you know, I didn't, I still didn't really fully know that at the time, but you know, I'm looking around, I, I look to the guy to my left and I grab him and I say, Hey man, you're hit. Like, look, you're bleeding. He's like, Oh, you know, this (laughs) <laughs> like, Oh no, I grabbed the guy to my right and I say, Hey man, like you're hit too. And he was like super out of it. He
0: goes, Oh yeah. Well, you know, F you, you're hit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you guys are making so fun bad. of
0: each other for getting blown up by a hand grenade. This is awesome.
1: Yeah, and I go, what? Cause, cause when the blast went off, it felt like, like doing a belly flop in a swimming pool, right? Like, like the, the just concussion blast yeah. wave just hit me all at once. But turns out I'd gotten shrapnel in my my upper left leg too, and uh, you know I, I still didn't feel it. But I look down, I see this blood stain in my you know real high upper left leg, and I'm like, oh man, like like how bad is this? And then the blood stain grows like in the matter of seconds from uh-huh. the size of like a quarter to like a dinner plate to like the blood's running down you know dripping off of my knee like it, almost immediately. So I'm like I'm freaking out. I'm like it's just really not good. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, after we took out that guy in the guard tower, things had, had quieted down. That was sort of like the last, you know, area that we needed to clear. So like, I quickly like grabbed one of my squaders. I'm like, Hey man, I got to go get checked out. But you know, like just make sure that you guys, you know, keep this base secure, uh-huh. clear back through all the buildings and I'll catch up with you hopefully, but I got to go get, get worked on. It. So get, you know, drug basically to the aid station and, uh, what I'm literally thinking about is that scene in black Hawk down where that ranger gets hit in the femoral artery Yeah, and they're fighting to try to clamp it and stop bleeding and he bleeds out. And, uh, I'm like where I got hit. I know I'm like big trouble If that. If that hit my femoral artery and there's so much blood and you know, I'm thinking like, man, is this, is this it? You know, is this the end of me? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, I know that you've said before that most of that movie was was pretty like true to real life. Or at least they did a good good job of trying to make it. So was was that a real yeah. scene?
0: Yeah, that really happened. The guy's name is Jamie Smith. We kept him alive for a long time by flying in bullets and blood. Bullets for all of his buddies to keep the fight going around him, and blood to try to keep him alive. But eventually, it got to the point where he was losing so much that we uh, we got the call over the radio like, if we don't get an aircraft in here immediately, he's going to die. And our big boss, you, you understand this as a leader in combat. Our big boss had this gut wrenching decision. If I fly a helicopter in there, that helicopter is going to get shot down. I'll have another downed helicopter. If I don't fly him in here, he's going to die. And we got a call on the radio about 30 minutes later saying that's it, he bled out, um, mm-hmm. which just devastated all of us because everybody was trying to get to him and get him back to the surgeon. But yeah, that event mm-hmm. really happened. And I, I um, Man, I just want to say, you sent me this photo. We got to talk about this photo. So most people are listening to this and they don't get a chance to see the photo. But if you're watching this, we're going to throw the photo up on the screen. You sent me a photo. It looks like one of those. You're going to tell your children and your grandchildren stories about this photo. So describe the photo for everybody who's driving and listening to this episode right now. Yeah, uh,
1: so that photo was taken you know, shortly after I'd gotten wounded, uh, I got taken to the aid station and got worked on, you know, so the medics are, are freaked out about the same thing I'm freaked out about is the formal artery. intact? turns out that, you know, just by the grace of God, that shrapnel missed my femoral artery by less than an inch. So they were yeah. able to, you know, uh, control the bleeding, uh, without doing anything too crazy. And, uh, you know, so I'm super relieved, but right about then I hear this guy screaming and yelling who they're, they're bringing in to the aid station. And he's saying, don't let him send me home, doc. Don't let him send me home. Like I gotta stay and I'm saying, I'm thinking what the heck is this about? And it was my platoon Sergeant, Josh Josh Ross. Yeah.
0: So for everybody who doesn't understand the military, this is the number one and number two guy in the unit that just got themselves blown up now or shot up.
1: Yeah, so I'm like, Josh, what the heck man, you know? And uh, I'm like, are you good? And the medics check him out and they're like, I think he's gonna be okay. And I'm like, okay, you know, so he's as relieved as I was when they told me I was gonna be okay. So he, he kind of jumps up and hobbles over to me. He goes, sir, we got to get a picture. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> okay. So we grab each other and, you know, we got, we're, you know, holding each other. We're all, you know, bloodied up. Oh, he got yeah. shrapnel on his legs too. a few more pieces than I did. You know, so, you know, we're looking pretty banged up and bloodied, but, uh, but you couldn't tell by our faces. Right. Cause we just got the best news ever that yeah. we we're like,
0: you're Maybe elated okay. that you're both going to survive. Literally, that you both are going to live to see another day is basically what the picture looks like. But you're pretty bloodied for anybody who's watching it or looking at the picture right now. So it doesn't seem to
1: line up. You're like, this terrible thing just happened yeah. to you, but you're incredibly happy. You know, it's like you're celebrating. It's like, it's kind of crazy, but but it was It was what it was at the time it just made sense and and it was real so
0: that's the full range of emotion that warriors go through in a battle or immediately after the battle's over with i totally understand the picture but for people that are looking at it they're like well i don't get it bloodied but smiles on their faces yeah
1: yeah i mean just the craziest day ever i mean there's there's so many more stories that we could get into but um you know following that you know there ended up being 16 americans wounded that day on our base um, and they burned down over half the base and yeah. we're really close to overrunning it. Um, you know, but thankfully my, my platoon performed really well. My guys yeah. just did, did an awesome job, you know, before and after I got you know wounded and, and, uh, you know, it was a lot better than it could have been.
0: You guys um, put up a good fight after it was over with, you were recognized for bravery as you should have been and received, um, the bronze star for that fight. Is that correct?
1: Uh, at the end of the deployment i did
0: yeah um so i want to point out to people at this point you have served in the military you've had a chance to graduate from a very prestigious school the uh, the military academy in west point you've now gone to combat you have led your men well through a battle and most people would say all right i've done what the country's asked me to do i'm good but you decide to stick around and in fact not only did you stick around the military but you, you you took it up a notch so what prompted you to decide to go consider special forces and trying out for special operations? What was the thought process that caused you to do that next?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I was, I was wrestling with a lot of stuff when I got back from that deployment. And, and one of them was like, you know, I had this like urge to like prove to myself that I could, I could still do it. Like I still had it, uh, even after getting wounded. And, you know, thank God I made, you know, what I thought was a full recovery you know um but i was like i feel like i you know i need to give it a few more years and and try to deploy uh you know again just to show myself that that i'm still good to go um so i really? i, I yeah. didn't want to necessarily keep, stay on the infantry track I, I had friends who were going to special ops track uh-huh. and, and i wasn't even positive if i want to stay in the military but i was like you know i'll go to selection um if i get picked up then great you know then you know it's just you know sign from god that this is this is meant to be and if i don't get selected then you know it's time for me to find something outside the military so go to selection you know thankfully that, that goes well uh, at least well enough and uh and get picked up so then you know, move to Fort bragg north carolina for two years of the special forces qualification course uh and then you know move down to florida after that uh for uh My detachment commander time at 7th Special Forces Group. Yeah,
0: and you led Special Forces teams uh, kind of around the world. Can you give everybody a very short summary of where you took Special Forces teams when you were uh, leading them?
1: Yeah, um, you know, most of 7th Group's activity is down in Latin America, so Central and South America, Uh and uh, deployed two times down to Colombia, actually, um, where we did, you know, different counter narcotics related. Missions and uh, at the time, Venezuela was was you know just kind of starting to to really destabilize and implode, and there was all kinds of you know issues coming across the border, uh, you know, people, weapons, drugs, like you name it, uh, coming from Venezuela through Colombia to the U.S. So, working with the Colombian military and police to to you know increase awareness of of the that situation and, and decrease the flow of threats towards the U.S. was uh, was some of the you know. More interesting work, I think, that yeah. we were doing, and it was it was just a ton of fun.
0: Yeah, so. um, it's a big transition to go from the regular side of the military into special operations. I heard you say it makes total sense to me, but I want to make sure that the listeners picked up on this. You went into special forces, which is a specific part of special operations in the U.S. military, um, often referred to as the Army's Green Berets. Okay. So let's have some fun together, man. You and I talked about this just before the episode started. I do this segment. It's called the high five. And in the high five segment, I try to go back and forth with whoever the guest is and just have a little fun. And because of our collective experience, mine and yours in the military and in special operations, I have had countless people. I can't even begin to come up with the number of people that when I told them I did special operations, they said, Oh, you're a green beret. And I'm like, well, the green berets do special operations, but the green berets are actually special forces. It's a little bit different. And then they look at me with this crazy look on their face. Like, I don't understand what's the difference between special forces and special operations. So can we have a little bit of fun here? Do you okay with that Colby? yeah let's do it i know you've had people do the same thing to you that they've done to me they hear special forces they think special operations or they automatically assume all special ops are special forces so in your mind top five things that are kind of distinguished special forces from the rest of special operations that's what i want us to talk about for a couple of minutes And for me, one of the the number one well, look, let's just talk about the easiest and the most obvious answer to number question number one. Um, what distinguishes special forces from the rest? It's the color of their beret, man. Everybody knows them as ever since John Wayne played in the movie Green Berets, everybody knows the color of that beret. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the the
1: branding side of it's a little confusing because we're special forces, we're green berets, it's all kind of the same thing. Um you know, yeah, but the yeah. green beret definitely helps you helps you stick out and makes makes it resonate. In people's okay, heads. so
0: for you, I know that people had to talk to you about that green beret while you were in the military, right? Tell me that 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 they had conversations with you about it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I remember before I was a green beret, seeing those guys walking on base and thinking they were, you know, pretty impressive, them, right? Like, Man, you know, yeah. Then uh, you know, you, like anything, you join and you realize they're just people uh, talented and dedicated and good at their job, but you know, just normal people. But, uh, but okay. So number,
0: number two on my list, what we're trying to do is just explain the differences between green berets as a group and the larger special operations forces in the military. So for me, number two on the list is really easy. It's the mission. The mission of green berets is very different from the mission that other special forces or special operations, sorry, special operations forces have. about you what would you say is another key difference between the two
1: (laughs) one of them you know i hadn't thought about this too much but um is green berets they think that they look good in suits (laughs) i think that's kind of unique
0: i like the fact that you said they think they look good but maybe they
1: do maybe they don't we all thought we look good in our suits um because we do a lot of work in embassies Uh and um, we're kind of you know, interagency type of relations type of settings. So everybody, you you know, you have to deploy with suits
0: Yeah, where you take Uh, the uniform off and you kind of try to blend in with the rest of the population. Yeah.
1: I remember us, you know, taking selfies, you know, being like, man, we look good. And, uh, in hindsight, looking at some of those pictures, now that I'm in the civilian world, and I've, you know, had to actually learn a little bit about suits. I realized, man, we looked half of us look like garbage. Yeah. But, yeah, we all think that we look really, really good in the suit.
0: Okay, you just moved towards number three for me because number three on the list for me is the beard. When you guys go overseas and you start growing all the beard and the long hair, it's pretty epic. And not all special operations do that. So what about the beard and the long hair? Come on, man. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think it was also tied to, like, Call of Duty. We All all of us thought that was super sexy, you know. It was, like, the, the typical operator look, you know, with, like, the tattoos and the beard and long hair. So we wanted to do it everywhere we went, whether, you know, that was helped you blend into the culture or not. Like in Colombia, for example, almost nobody has a beard, you know, but our guys were just like, man, I, sh- I need to be able to grow a beard. I want to grow a big beard. And we were like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. To Why would you in. be
0: the only dude down here with a big beard? Yeah. It's like, this is in Afghanistan, you know,
1: where everybody yeah. has a beard, but yeah, everybody wanted to to have that look. So.
0: All right. So for folks that don't understand the difference, number four is the paycheck. Let's just be honest. When you're overseas, you get a little bit of more, a little bit of extra money as a special forces guy that sometimes the other special operations forces don't get because you're on these special orders, right?
1: <laughs> that's right. And yeah, it's shocking what people will go through for just a little bump in pay. You know, whether that's getting married to somebody they know they shouldn't be married to or on <laughs> special forces. Um, yeah, it's it's a good motivator.
0: Yeah. Number five, and here for me is kind of the pinnacle of the list. So in this high five, what distinguishes the Green Berets from the rest of special operations? Well, ultimately, it's the mission of fighting with foreigners, teaching foreigners how to fight to defend their country well. And honestly, nobody on the planet does it better than special forces. So can you talk about that quintessential special forces mission of training other forces?
1: Yeah, I mean... uh... You know, we, we operate by, with, and through partner in indigenous forces. That's like, that's what we're really good at. So if you know, that was kind of a humbling thing for me, you know, as I got to work with other special operations groups, if you want to send in a group of Americans by themselves to get a job done, there's units that probably do that better than, than, than we did it. Right. Like, I mean, the, the Rangers, the seals that's, that's what they do so, so well, but you know, bar none, nobody, nobody can work with partner forces to enable them to be successful. Like Green Berets can, and that's 100% just agree. such a good yeah.
0: It's so important. Nobody on the planet can do what the Green Berets can do when it comes to training with and teaching those foreign indigenous forces how to fight, uh, to defend their own country or how to do their thing in their own in their own backyard. Nobody can do that like the Green Berets can. Uh, uh, one thing that
1: all special operations forces have in common is that we're sick of being asked if we're Navy SEALs too.
0: <laughs> you and me both. Yes, absolutely. Ever since
1: the bin Laden thing, it's like they've they've won the branding war, right? Yeah. So everyone says, Oh, is that are you like a SEAL? Is it, you know it's like, oh, I'm so sick of hearing yeah. that. Nothing yeah. but SEALs, right? But yeah, right. That, that gets old.
0: Okay. So you spent about nine years in the army. Uh, at some point everyone decides, Hey, it's time to call my military career. Uh it's time to to end my military career. Some some guys and gals will do it after just a few months or a few years. Some will do it for decades. Why after nine years did you say, all right, it's time for me to move on to something different?
1: Yeah, for, for me, it wasn't an easy choice because I, I loved what I had done in in the Army. Like, I loved it.
0: So did I, and it was a hard decision for me too, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd honestly, at that point, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time away. I'd been deployed quite a bit, uh-huh. you know, and gone for training and moved a lot again I married my wife, Sarah, my, you know, she was my high school sweetheart. We got married right after West Point. So she lived with me in, in Georgia and Colorado and North Carolina and Florida, like moved her all over the place. We were thinking about having kids at that point. So, you know, we just together decided that it was time to, to pivot and, and move on to the next chapter God had for us.
0: Yeah. And I want to point out, you went from one of the most difficult and, uh, um, Prestigious schools in America, West Point, to another one of the most difficult and prestigious schools in America, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where you got a business, an MBA. Why did you look at M- uh, MIT, the Sloan Business School, um, for your M- MBA?
1: Yeah, I'm, I remember as a kid uh, being in Boston with my dad. I think he was scouting the, the Red Sox and, and, uh, And we drove by MIT and I remember him telling me I was probably nine years old at the time he goes that's that's MIT only geniuses go there yeah
0: that's right I still (laughs) feel like only geniuses get into MIT yeah
1: well you know our country is amazing for so many reasons but one of them is is how we take care of our veterans and and that that applies to higher education too so veterans you know apply to as like a protected class to to all of these programs, so really you're competing with other veterans and not the general population uh, to get you know some of the few slots that are set aside at each of these these great schools. Uh, so you know, like I still had to like work hard and and uh, do well on my my scores uh, on the standardized tests and stuff to to get in. But yeah. ultimately, I was able to get into MIT despite not being a genius, not even close, uh, because I you know served in the military and and that's you know you talk about like. Yeah, you know, being thankful for some of these trials and setbacks you go through, like, you know, getting blown up in Afghanistan, you know, isn't something I, I would wish on anybody, but it gave me, you know, a story that I could I could look back yeah. on. I can share that story. And I was able to share it in my admissions essays and, and interviews and stuff. And, and it's, you know, was was, you know, was compelling enough to help get me into MIT. So, yeah. you know. Among hey, many reasons, that's one reason I'm, I'm very thankful.
0: I'm just going to tell you, Colby, I still feel like you're a little bit of a genius because to me, you don't go to MIT. You don't even get in, let alone make it through without having a little bit of genius in you. And I think that probably came from your mom's side of the family, right?
1: <laughs> For sure. For yeah. sure, not my
0: dad's. Yeah. My friend's dad. But... <laughs> hey, as we get ready to wrap up, tell everybody what you're doing now in Houston, Texas with the Home Run Dugout. Um, describe this startup that you took, that you're part of
1: yeah so uh my best friend from high school his name's tyler bambrick uh we went to west point together actually um uh, served as infantry officers together and then uh-huh. he got out before i did went to business school and while he was there uh met a guy named nick and he had this idea that you know like we love what top golf does but why can't we do that for baseball you know like we were baseball fans yeah, and yeah uh, you know we're like this this could be a ton of fun so So they started working on that and then you know when i was in business school i was looking at what i wanted to do and and at that point they'd uh you know they started to have some traction and and raise some money and were looking to grow and and uh needed you know to to grow the leadership team so it just really connected a lot of the things that uh that i was looking for you know from the baseball connection to uh you know being able to apply the the things i learned in the military about leadership and a leadership position in the company and the entrepreneurial route really resonated yeah. with me because I feel like, you know, it had more of what I liked about the army and less of what I didn't like about the army. So there's like less uh, of the All of the good stuff,
0: but not the bad stuff. Nice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Less of the the you know, the bureaucracy and, and the regulations and stuff like that. But more of the like you with a small, tight knit group of people who you really care about yeah. and doing interesting things every day. That that really, you know, attracted me to it. Yeah. And Uh, you know, we're going to have a chance, you know, if this goes well to, to employ a lot of people. And that's, that's something that's really, you know, still gets me fired up is, is providing good jobs for, for America.
0: Well, hopefully it won't be long before there is a a home run dugout in every little city in America. And you're pretty much the next Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, right?
1: (laughs) That's great. I'll go along with that now. Let's do it.
0: Hey, man, I just want to say thank you for sharing this incredible story. Thanks for being willing to, you know, continue with your military education at West Point, going off to Afghanistan and serving the country. And even after getting blown up and you could have just, um, you know, sailed over or sailed off into the horizon with those, uh, all of those combat stories you stuck around and you did some pretty amazing things for our country. And I just want to say, thanks, man. Thanks for all that you've done for us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you. And, uh, it's great to be on and thank you for, for this podcast. I found it really inspiring and, and hopefully something I shared today to helps somebody out.
0: Yeah, thank I'm you. sure it will. If, if people want to know more about you, um, how can they find out more about you, Colby? Uh,
1: let's see. I mean, I'm on uh, I got rid of most of my social media. I'm Good on LinkedIn for you. under under Colby Smith, C O L B Y. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, I'll, you can send me an email. Uh, my email is Colby at home run dugout. That's uh, you know, all one word. Just like C-O-L-B-Y it sounds yep. homerundugout.com. Yeah, and well, I'd love to talk to anybody who's who's interested in, in learning more. Just wants to wants to wants to connect.
0: We'll put some of the we'll put the links to this. Uh, definitely your your link um, to LinkedIn in the notes to this show today. But man, again, thanks for being with us, and thanks for being one of those unbeatable guys and gals that have served the country. Uh, thank you, Jeff. It's great All right, man. Hey, Colby can't control getting his shoulder blown out in his first semester of school. He didn't have any control over getting blown up by a hand grenade on his first combat deployment, and you can't control your circumstances either, nor can I. But what you and I can learn from Colby Smith is circumstances are out of your control, but how you respond to them and the attitude that you bring after things have gone wrong makes all the difference in the world. Thanks for joining me for this episode. And by the way, if you found us on social media, I'd love for you to follow us, you can find us basically anywhere by just going to at unbeatable podcast and following along there, or if you've discovered this podcast and you've been listening for a couple of episodes on your favorite podcast platform, why don't you rate us? Tell everybody else that's listening to podcasts, how amazing unbeatable is. And by the way, I want to help you if you're facing some challenges right now, and you're really not sure how to handle it or what to do next. I got a free resource for you. It's called the unbeatable army survival guide. And all you got to do to get it, it's a PDF, totally free. All you got to do is just simply go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'll see you right back here next week.